0: Uh, The reading um, today is from Acts 19, verse 8 to 10, and then I'm going to skip to verse 23 to 32. So Acts 19, 8 to 10, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephes- Of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristocris, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Thank you, Haley. I'm going to call Raj up, who's preaching with us this morning, and we are starting a new series, Relate. You might even be able to see yourself in that little photo over there, 10 points if you are there, but um, you will see lessons from Ephesus on marriage, family, singleness, sexuality, and church life, and so join us over the next few weeks as we cover those topics, and over to you.
1: Still nothing? This one. Okay, there we go. Should I leave this on? The million dollar question. Are you guys going to watch me with the thing on my ear that's not actually working? I vote no. It's hanging behind my back for all of those that are <laughs> control freaks. It's okay. I promise. Good morning. Thanks to Haley for uh, sort of reminding us of the value of listening. And... Um, And welcome to the mother city, the city with one of the seven wonders of the world, the the city with a beautiful port that is fronted into this magnificent blue ocean, A, a city with a stadium that is right on the edge of the port, a most magnificent place where people from the whole continent wish they could live, a city that is known as the mother city, stadia, that would be filled to the brim with life and with, with, uh, charged with cultural shaping things. The Mother City. No, not Cape Town. Today we speak about Ephesus. Believe it or not, the only other historic city that I've ever come across that was also known as the Mother City. Across Asia, the city of Ephesus was known as the mother city. It was a place that was filled with culture and throbbing with life. It was a port city and an incredibly strategic trade route for multiple different routes across Asia. Ephesus was a place that housed one of the ancient wonders, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple to the goddess Artemis. Very little of it remains now, but it's in modern Turkey. And if you go there, there's one sort of pillar that remains of this incredible temple that was built, one of the, the great wonders of the world. The city was a place that was renowned for housing, God. this this temple to the goddess Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility. And so this place was renowned as a place of, of life, of, of, of culture shaping. Many people called it the mother city because it was comparable with Rome and comparable with Athens. People thought that it was really in one of the, the category of one of the great cities of the time and paul was one of these guys who uh, since kind of hearing the gospel since the the message of the gospel came into his heart he realized that there was nothing he could do but go from one city to the next simply proclaiming this message he recognized that this man called jesus who had lived uh, in in basically in israel for most of his time and it had had done pro- pro- amazing miracles and signs and wonders, was, was actually heaven and earth's true king. That he had come and he had defeated sin and Satan and death, and that Paul himself was now a witness to what Jesus had done. And he spent the rest of his life going throughout the Near East from one city to the next, simply proclaiming the gospel. When he got to Ephesus, some incredible miracles happened. He spent 2 or 3 years there amazingly 2 or 3 years preaching the gospel. He started in the synagogue. You'll see if you go read through Acts chapter 19, the Jewish people started rejecting him, so he found a new place and he he started gathering the disciples there and he kept he kept coaching them on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to to trust one's life into the hands of Jesus Christ and to become a disciple of Jesus? Of course, a couple of years in, we've just read What happens? His influence begins to grow, or maybe not Paul's influence, but the influence of the gospel begins to grow, and it begins to change people's hearts like it has been doing for 2,000 years. Amazingly, what happens when it changes people's hearts is it also changes their behavior, and it changes their spending habits. And the next thing you find out that these people have stopped buying these little shrines, these little silver shrines to the goddess Artemis and suddenly a few people are getting their nose out of joint because this is affecting not just their reverence for this this goddess and this temple, it's affecting their wallet. And when it affects your wallet and your deep beliefs, things get out of joint. And so they go to this, this stadium, 20,000 seater. And uh, along with, uh, it, uh, his name was Demetrius. He gathers a crowd. It said at the end, some of them didn't even know why they were there. We all know those kind of uh, moments where people just get gathered up and swept up into the crowd, and basically, they're in the stadium, and they're all going, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, and when you've got a crowd of that kind of magnitude, you need a scapegoat, you need someone to point a finger at, and so they find these few guys who proclaim to be Christians, and they say, these guys, along with Paul, they're proclaiming that basically, this goddess is nothing, and you don't need these shrines, and they're killing our business, and they are putting Artemis into disrepute, and the city is in an uproar. Uh, If we had more time, we could read on. The story doesn't end too badly for Paul. Ultimately, uh, we think he probably was martyred for his faith, but at this point, he gets out unscathed. uh, One of the big sort of chiefs of the city comes in. He goes, guys, this is no way to deal with the dispute. Go to the court if you want to complain about Paul, and uh, Paul and the apostles sneak out and get away without losing too much uh, discomfort in this time. Paul was beaten, and he was uh, accused of much, but he got out of Ephesus soon after that, after being there for two or three years. Amazingly, 400 years later, the city of Ephesus has become a Christianized city. 400 years, and Artemis is a kind of distant memory. And the city is known for having one of the most famous Christian councils where they begin to create doctrine and and, and the culture of the the Western world is shaped by this city, which has become essentially more Christian than uh, worshiping any other gods. The fundamental beliefs of most of the people of Ephesus 400 years later is Christian. Isn't that interesting? And Paul goes on and he does many other sort of uh, ministry trips And eventually he ends up in Rome, and Nick was preaching last week, because when he's in Rome, he's stuck in prison, and he writes a number of letters, and one of the letters he writes is a letter to the Ephesians, and he writes back to this church that he planted that has begun to grow and begin to bear fruit and has begun to grow influence, and he writes back and he begins to give some advice. And he begins to remind them of the stuff that really matters. And in the first three chapters, theologians call these the indicatives of the gospel. He writes about the the wonders of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks about the the salvation by grace, the kindness of God, the the beauty of what it means to be loved by God, to have God uh, prepare good works in advance for us. And he just talks about these lofty and beautiful truths of the gospel that leave you dizzy as you go so high into the glories of this wonderful message that christ is king and that he calls all humanity into a new world into this beautiful thing called the church and you left after chapter three going whoa that is just magical and then he gets to chapter four and for the last three chapters he goes away from these indicatives and he goes into these imperatives and he starts to look at each person and he says now that you have found this gospel this is how you should live And he begins to coach them. He says, now I wanna teach you the the manner of your life and how you should actually walk one day at a time, how you should look after your your finances, how you should uh, do marriage, how you should do singleness, how you should do sexuality, how you should understand leadership, how you should understand parenting. And he spends a whole bunch of time going into all these things. Now, what's interesting was that his gospel proclamation caused a riot then. 2,000 years later, It's these teachings that cause riots around the world, aren't they? You think of sexuality. Paul brings some real uh, interesting and and, and profound teachings on sexuality. 2,000 years later, it's these teachings that are causing people to get up in arms and go, how dare you say this about uh, sexual identity? How dare you say this about that? Or or leadership and, and convictions around leadership. You've got stadia full of people saying, this is the leader we should have or marriage, or the right to life. All of these values that Paul preaches from uh, chapters four through six have become the hot topics of the day that are filling auditoriums and theaters with people who are believing one thing over another and are causing a kind of riot. Now, I wanna sort of take a little bit of a tangent for a moment, because 2,000 years after Paul penned this letter to the Ephesians after he wrote letters to the Galatians and all the other amazing letters that he wrote. There's a man named Tom Holland who began to look into uh, sort of, he's a historian and as a historian he was mad about roman civilization now roman civilization if you're a young boy is pretty awesome you know you got soldiers you've got like you know swords it's a, it's a dream for a young kid and and he was this you know historian who basically loved dinosaurs and he loved roman civilization and he spent the rest of his life studying roman civilization he understands all the kind of uh, different dynasties all the caesars he is an absolute guru And if you go listen to his podcast, you'd just be blown away by his intimate knowledge of of the Roman Empire. But something happened about three or four years ago, which made him actually want to write a book. But essentially what he was doing was he was looking at Roman civilization... And then he was looking at western civilization and it was particularly over the time where black lives matter and the me too movement was you know taking over and there was a whole bunch of heat around all these topics of sort of social justice as it was being called and there were people who were really rioting literally about these different issues. And Tom Holland who's this historian he's looking at roman civilization and he's looking at western civilization. And he's going, how in the world is this happening? You see, I understand Rome and the world into which Rome and the, and the Bible was preached and Jesus arrived. How did, in 2,000 years, the whole world stand up at one point when a person, a woman or, or, or a handful of them, come up and say, I've been mistreated sexually by men And the whole of Western civilization goes, that is not okay. He found himself going, where did this come from? You see, he understood that in Roman society, this was just unheard of. Roman sexual ethics were basically non-existent. 2,000 years ago, there was no such thing as a sexual ethic or, or human rights for that matter. He writes this about sexual ethics in the Roman uh, uh, times. He says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely self evident a truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. If you came to a Roman and you brought him into the 21st century and you told him that every human being has equal dignity and worth, a Roman soldier would have looked at you and said, You're mad. That is not the case. It's men and it's soldiers. We've got the dignity and we get to do, with, uh, do what we want. We are the strong and the strong survive. Human rights were non-existent in the world into which Paul and Jesus entered, into which the teachings of the gospel arrived. Or what about sexual ethics? Tom Holland carries on. He says, sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior, to be marked as womanish, barbarian, servile. While the body of a freeborn Roman was sacrosanct, those of others was fair game. You see, sometimes we put our Western values onto the world into which Jesus and Paul arrived and we think it was just the same kind of value system just with you know, different views on the world. Maybe you know a few different gods, etc. This was not the case. The value system was completely different. What about compassion and justice? Tom Holland writes uh, through his knowledge of, of the Roman Empire, he says, that human beings have rights, that they're born equal, that they owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution, these were never (laughs) self-evident truths. These were never self-evident truths. It's just not the view of a Roman person. That was the civilization's view. People, the strongest survived. If you were weak and you didn't have a home and you didn't have a way to survive, too bad for you. You don't need to look after the weak. You don't need to look after the marginalized. That is their problem. Maybe they can look after each other, but there's no uh, kind of um, responsibility that should be put on the, the strong to look after the weak. You see, what Tom Holland does, and I don't have time to convince you, but he tries to help us. And, and for that matter, Tom Holland, who is this amazing historian, has still, he, he, when he writes this book, he is not a follower of Jesus. He's simply asking the question, how did civilization become so embedded with these values of love, of compassion, of of sexual ethics that are so liberating and healthy? You see, what I want you to get here is that while the church is not perfect, it has a checkered history, he helps us to realize that the fundamental value set of basically all Westerners comes from the scriptures that Paul writes like the ones to the Ephesians, saturating our society for the last 2,000 years and his teachings essentially creating a value set. It's important to get this because we don't realize whether you're a follower of Jesus and we expect every week that some of you come to visit us, you get dragged along by someone and you come check it out and you don't believe in, in the gospel. Here's the thing, if you live in the West and you've got a basic value set, a lot of that, whether you like it or not, is infused with biblical underpinnings. It's infused with with a biblical worldview, especially when it comes to compassion, justice, humility. However, we're in an interesting place in history. What a guy by the name of Mark Sayers calls the gray zone. The gray zone. You see, the gray zone is this interesting season in human history, where the values of our Western civilization and our society are, are largely kind of Christian values. However, our values are like a body that has been detached from the head. The arm has been taken, the other arm's been taken, the other leg has been taken off, and essentially there's people fighting for the values of different things, whether it's morality, sexual ethics, whether it's inclusivity, whether it's human rights. We've got these different things that are all being pulled apart And different people going, this is how it works. It's a bit like the kingdom without the king. That's how one theologian describes it. We live in a world, that's the gray zone, whereby we've got this value system. We go, we know compassion and justice is right, but it's detached from the one who gave us compassion and justice. We live in a society that goes, we want compassion and justice, we're just not sure we want the one who brought it into the world in Jesus Christ. We want the kingdom, but we're not sure we want the king. And so our society is getting increasingly polarized as different people hold on to different uh, sort of values, different moral compasses. They believe in different things and different uh, emphases and with different sense of conviction and uh, and thoroughness. I know this is a little complex. I know it takes a bit of uh, work, but I want you to understand this because it's so crucial as we begin to understand that all of us have a view of the world, a kind of moral view of the world, what we deem to be right and wrong, what we deem to be most valuable. We have a kind of lens through which we look at the world, and this is shaped by who we've become and what we're surrounded by. So Paul writes to the church and he goes, I know there are differing, competing moral visions for the world, but he says in chapter four, verse one of Ephesians, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He writes to a church in a world that is polarized. He writes where there are people who are competing saying, no, it's this God, no, it's this moral vision, no, it's this way of living. And I think all of us have probably even in the last week had a moment where we've watched the news or you've had an interaction with a family member or a cousin and you realize that there is an awkwardness between their view of what is right and wrong, what is their ethic around morality or sexuality or identity and you find yourself going, I'm not sure where I stand on this. I'm not sure what to say into this. There is some complexity about it. And Paul writes and he says, as a prisoner, as someone writing from a distance, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This, this calling that you've received, this amazing grace that God has brought to you, I want you to be unified around the way that you live. I want you to be unified around your moral vision as a church so that you can see what it is that God has called you to. It's complex, but It's important. And he says, I want you to have unity in the spirit. I want you to have peace, a kind of shalom that works amongst you as you look at this very complex and difficult world into which we all are called to live. Should we swap mics? There's a buzzing noise that's rather crazy. And Paul writes and he says, this is really important. I want you to Get this, and I, and I want us to get this because I think we live in a world where we want to rush past, and I want us to slow down. and It's a it's a little bit of a complex message, and it's not always as easy to ingest. But I want us to slow down and realize that these hotly contested topics, the the reality of these, are always there's going to come a crossroads. There's going to come a point in our lives, and and as the church, we're going to need to go there and and have some of these important conversations. And so today I want to just put a bit of a a basis, a foundation. I want us to understand what are the competing moral visions? What are the differing views that our society might have that in fact actually come into our lives, that we too might have? And so I want to say thank you to Mark Sayers, who kind of gives this beautiful um, sort of moral vision, these competing moral visions, a lovely table, if we could go to that next slide, and He helps us to understand the four different competing moral visions, these different kind of gospel expressions that basically are trying to say, this is the good life. This is how it works. This is how life is. And so we're going to spend a bit of time helping ourselves to understand what are the competing moral visions that live in our world. And then we will just celebrate the gospel for the last part. So firstly the most uh, the, the the first competing moral vision for our lives is the hedonistic moral vision some people say the hedonist vision here in this vision for life or one's life the purpose of life is pleasure This is all about you finding your deepest joy and pleasure. Happiness is the goal of the hedonist. You work to play, and if possible, you try to play at work. Life is about finding as much pleasure as often as you can. You exist for pleasure. No one ever, I've never met someone who goes, hey, my name's Jim, and I'm a hedonist. You don't do that. It's something that's baked into our conscience. It's baked into how we see the world. The purpose of life for a hedonist is simply to derive more and more pleasure out of life. What is sin to the hedonist? Well, sin to the hedonist is to prevent pleasure, to stop someone, ourselves or others, from experiencing pleasure. It reminds me of that famous movie based in the 1950s. Did anybody watched Pleasantville? Remember that one? Basically, Pleasantville is a black and white movie. And as these sort of uh, straight jacketed, very conservative people start tasting different types of pleasure and they shed themselves of moral constraints or shed themselves of other constraints in their lives, this black and white movie begins to turn into color. Because they're getting rid of these moral constraints that are stopping them enjoying their lives. And it's this amazing comment on the fact that the the world is made for hedonism. If we had more pleasure, we could have more happiness and people would be better. So anything that stops people from experiencing pleasure is sin. That's the view in this worldview. What is the world to a hedonist? The world to a hedonist is a playground. It is your arena to explore and experience. It's all about finding as many experiences in this world as you possibly can. It takes the parenting mantra of, you know, raising kids with character, and it says, you know what, that's cool, but I wanna raise kids to have experiences. And it's become more and more popular. Who cares about my kids' character as long as they see the world and they have great experiences? And it becomes more and more popular. What's the attitude to faith? What's the attitude to faith for a hedonist? Well, the attitude to faith is it's too moral. It's a bit of a straitjacket. Why would you have faith? It's, it's like really is quite limiting. How can we have fun and have faith? They're going to tell me what to do. Faith is going to tell me that I can't do some things. And if I can't do some things, surely I'm missing out on the pleasure that I am made for. The the hedonist attitude to faith loves the bits that talk about, you know, adventure and fun, but hates the bits that talk about, you know, uh, dying to self and the difficulty of life and facing suffering with, you know, well, It, it resists those things. What's the solution to the problems of life for the hedonist? Well, the solution is this. Less rules, more pleasure. If we could have more pleasure, we would have more happiness. Uh, Reich was one of the, the sort of big proponents, a fancy philosopher back in the day. He said that actually, if, uh, if more people experienced more pleasure, people like those evil fascists who did terrible things and killed masses of people, they wouldn't have done it if they just had more pleasure. Isn't that fascinating? There's this deep conviction that more pleasure would fix the problems of the world. So maybe, maybe there's a bit of a hedonist in all of us, at least parts of it. But then the next person is the moralist. The moralist view is, uh, is a fascinating one, probably the most complicated one. It's probably the one that, uh, it, you know, it has a bit of biblical reality. Some of us know the story of the prodigal son, the older brother, the one who likes to do things right all the time. But the moralist actually comes out as a response from the 19, sort of 60s and, and 70s. You know the rebel thing where it was actually cool to be a rebel? Anybody grow up when it was cool to be a rebel? I kind of did. Like, you were the coolest person if you went to the back of the class, if you didn't you know, conform. Those were the coolest people. Then everyone conformed to their rebellion. And then what happened was because everyone was conforming to rebellion, a whole bunch of people said, well, why don't we just right this ship? We need some people who actually take responsibility. Look at our planet. It's dying. And look at these morals. They're killing us. We need some people who can do right. And in comes the world of this moralist. The purpose of the moralist is to do good. No longer want to do bad. No longer want to be the rebel. It's a reaction to hedonism. They kind of got a lot of hashtags with the moralist. You know, the BLM, Black Lives Matter, and and, and Me Too, and and trying to educate the world into making sure that they do things right. But lots of photos of, of plastic islands all around the world. We are doing the world wrong. We need to educate ourselves. The problem, the purpose of life is really to educate ourselves to do better. Sin, what is sin to the moralist? Sin is the oppression that comes from ignorance. If everyone just knew If they read these four or five great books and they understood and they listened to these podcasts, the world would be enlightened. People would stop doing silly things and we would all get on better. We just need to be a little more tolerant, a little better educated, and the world would be fixed. Sin is the oppression that comes from ignorance. We just need more hashtags. We just need more causes to fix the world and it will get better. So what's the view of the moralist around the world? What is the world? The world is a good place that has been Ruined. It's a good place that's been ruined. If ignorant, uneducated people didn't keep ruining the world, it would be much better off. Unfortunately, there's just so much ignorance, we just gotta sort that out. What's the attitude towards faith? This is probably the most complicated one. See, the moralist likes parts of faith but doesn't like other parts. The moralist is often very educated, so a moralist might pitch up, maybe you're here today, you pitched up at church and you're going, I just can't believe you guys still believe this stuff. You just need to read this book and you could put this stuff to bed today. You wouldn't need to. There's so many better things that could enlighten you and we fix the world and let's move on. Or maybe they kind of go, you know what? I know you guys are going to just judge me for the, the stuff I've, I've done wrong, but you don't understand that I actually know a step ahead. I've read this book as well and I understand this stuff and I listen to these things. The moralist loves education and prizes the sense that they know the solutions to the future. So what's the solution to a moralist? Virtuous education. Let's get everybody educated. Let's get everyone aware and this whole thing will turn. Guys, as I'm speaking, you all know we're living in a world swimming in this worldview, right? We live in a world that's saying more of this and we will turn the tide. We will change the world. The environment will turn around. Global warming will stop if we just read the right books. Maybe, maybe not. Remember, there's a bit of truth in all these worldviews. The next one is another fascinating one, the therapeutic, the therapeutic. What's the purpose of life for the therapeutic person? The purpose of life is to feel peace. You just want to feel peace, a sense of calm in a world gone wild. In this crazy world, I want to find some inner centering because it just feels like everything is out of kilter and I and my clan need some peace and I'm going to do everything I can to find that peace. What's the sin to the therapeutic view? The sin is this: is to cause mental or emotional pain. I don't want to experience mental, emotional pain. I don't want any of my loved ones to experience mental or emotional pain. And so anyone who causes that is causing the greatest harm. We need to make sure we eradicate that from ourselves and from the world. That is the major problem with the world: emotional and mental pain. There's too much trauma. What is the world to a therapeutic view? The world is definitely not a playground. The world to the therapeutic worldview is a dangerous, traumatic place filled with pain and terrifying things that could go wrong. And so there is this desire to ensure that there is distance, that there is some way to create a barrier, a buffer between us and the pain and the lack of peace and the trauma that comes around this world, that comes around us. We need to have gaps between us and this dangerous world. What's the attitude to faith? This is an interesting one. The attitude to faith for a therapeutic view is, well, it's good if it works, this is the one where, uh, it's probably the hardest one to pallet as a pastor, but um, it's one where basically people go, you know what, it's good if it works for you. So so happy. And so you hear the interviews, you know, and different people will go, what brings you peace? And you watch it on TV and the one person goes, well, you know, long walks in the mountain are what really worked for me. The other person goes, no, I go to mosque, you know, once every seven weeks. I go to church, church really works for me. And different people go, oh, and that's just so good as long as it works for you. And faith has kind of turned into a utilitarian thing that as long as it works to produce your inner peace, happy for you. And that's great, I really want that to work. And so there's this utilitarian take whatever you need out of this dangerous and complex world that provides a sense of cushioning for the complexity and pain that happens. I think through COVID this one emerged profoundly, don't you? We suddenly got in our homes. We had like six weeks where we couldn't go out. We heard all the news of the dangerous stuff that was out there, and we literally started smashing um, nails into the windows of our souls, basically going, don't let anything in. Don't let anyone, any trauma, any danger come in. And we coached ourselves that out there is terrifying, in here is kind of safe, and we need to make sure that we create as much safety as we can. And whether we found a different country or a different home or a different job or a different anything, to just create some sense of peace in a world gone wild. No disrespect to people who went through trauma, who have been through trauma. The point is this is a worldview that says this is the overarching dominant view of life. This is, the, this is the kind of gospel that could fix us if we could just minimize harm. That's the solution for the therapeutic. Minimize harm. Find as much safety from mental and emotional harm, and everything will be better. Create a safe world. Make sure that our politicians are creating a safe world for humanity. Make sure that our leaders, our teachers, I feel really sorry for teachers. You've got to create such a, an amazingly cotton world environment for anyone. And if you create any harm, you've done something wrong. It looks Exhausting. If you've got a therapeutic worldview because there's so much you can do wrong. We get it a little bit as church leaders from time to time. But it's often the leader's problem. They need to create safety for us. And then there's the nihilist, the final one. We're getting to the end. The nihilist... Has, is a kind of growing worldview. Many in our generation, as I look across, won't experience much of this. This is more like the kind of Gen Z, born in 97 afterwards. Don't have to put up your hand. But those, that's a kind of growing view, where basically, here's the view of the world. The world is broken, The purpose of life is really to feel nothing. Try to not feel anything because actually it's a doomed, failed experiment and it's not going anywhere. So we shouldn't really expect much pleasure. We should simply just try to feel as little as we can because peace is just a waste of time. Don't try to search for peace. Where are you gonna get peace in such a broken world? What is sin to the nihilist? Well, sin, it's everywhere. You can't escape it. It's the fabric of our world. It's unavoidable. What is the world? The world is one plain old disaster to the nihilist. It's broken from start to finish, and it has no real hope. There's a real sense that the bad news is just going to keep getting louder. So what do we do? Attitude to faith? Well, the attitude to faith is much like every other thing. It's as broken as everything else. Look at those leaders. It's filled with cynicism. Can't believe that we would ever believe that that could fix such a broken world. Everyone has their price. All leaders are, are kind of a little dodgy. So, why would we even bother with that whole thing? What's the solution? Retreat. Escape. Find a way out of this dangerous, wild, wacky world. Maybe it's in gaming. Maybe it's in the metaverse. But find a way to get into a new world that isn't as broken as this one so we can just move ourselves because that one is so messed up. Isn't this fascinating? Isn't this so interesting? Don't you feel like as you listen to it, as you look at it, you're going, there's a lot of me in there. There's a lot of me in the way I view the world there. And not all of it is bad, I get it. But there's a lot of the world in there. There's a lot of the society in which we live in there. And Paul writes, and he's going to write to us in the Gospels to the Ephesians as we look at Ephesus, as we look at other parts of Scripture to the Ephesians, and he's going to say there is a better way. There's another alternative. There is a gospel that comes in Jesus Christ that pictures that there is a higher purpose to life. You see, in the gospel uh, of Jesus, we have a purpose to life that Paul writes in this, and he says in verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians, he says, "'We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand.'" The purpose of life is not primarily pleasure. It's not primarily to find peace. It's not primarily to to kind of escape from the world. It's to realize that God in his amazing love has included us into partnership with him and that we are given this amazing mandate to glorify him and to live in his world on his terms because he loves us. And he says, come join me in this amazing adventure called life. Join me as we start this journey. First, come into my presence, then be formed into my image, and at the same time, live on mission for my glory. That's what it's all about. Come, realize that you are created by God for good works that he prepared for you. You are a person filled with destiny and promise. That's the purpose of life, to live with him as a priest in his world, being able to to mediate his grace to a very, fallen and complicated world, filled with beauty and brokenness. So what is sin? Well, sin is essentially our breaking from God, our breaking and saying, you know what, there's a better moral vision, there's a better way of life, there's a happier view to the way we can do life, and I'm going to choose it. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. He's going, sin is essentially to turn your back on God and to choose your own way. It's to say, I have a new and better option. I like yours, but God, it's peace that I need. And God goes, no. No, don't turn your back on me. It's like chopping the head off the body. You don't realize that you need that to bring a cohesive whole. You need to trust me. But we love to chop off the head and try to get the kingdom without the king. That probably is another good description of sin. Try to get the kingdom, but exclude the king. Be the master of your own destiny. What's the world in this gospel view? The world is God's creation to live in and to transform, to take the raw materials of God's world and to turn it into his glory and the good of others. It's the arena in which we get to glorify God with our lives. It's the place, says Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 10, that he will unite everything together in heaven and on earth. He's going to renew all of this and he says, come, join me, partner with me. We're gonna transform this place. Yes, it's broken. Yes, it's battered. Yes, it's bruised, but come one life at a time, one partnership journey at a time, we are going to turn this thing around. We're going to be part of this plan. And he looks at the church in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and he says that it was his intent, that's God, that now, through the church, the wisdom of God would be made known. He says he doesn't just look at individuals, he looks at the whole lot and he says, come, join me on this global renewal project. Come join me as we change the world through being with me in my presence. You are the temple of the living God. You're the presence of God in the world. You're those people. And, and don't just do that. Be formed into the image of Jesus and then go on mission. You're a people on mission. What is faith in the gospel? Well, faith is that we're sinners saved by grace. This is probably one of the hardest pills to swallow. In a world that loves a bit of good therapy, wants to be filled with peace, and the bad news is that you and I are sinners. And we've dafted it. and we've chosen our own vision for our life, and we've gone our own route, and God, as the king of kings, comes and he says, "I died for your sin, but I am the king." And, and we're sinners. It says, "For it is by grace that you have been saved." This not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Here's the glory of the gospel. Faith is to go, I'm sinful, but I am saved by his mercy and his kindness. God in his grace has done something that the world is still gasping at. The angels are literally holding their mouth going, what? How kind is God that he would give his only son and that he would stand in the stead of sinful human beings and he would begin the renewal project through his own death and his own resurrection. Really? Yes, really. Really. Faith is to trust that. It's to say yes to his invitation. It's to say yes, yes, I want peace, but maybe I need to trust first the bad news that I actually have been part of bringing brokenness. I haven't brought all the peace. And I don't know how to bring peace all the time. But I need the supernatural peace that might come as I trust you. And as I go, maybe to other nations. There are people in this room who God's going to call to to the life of the greatest peace and joy you could imagine. But who knows? It might be also to our death, Losing our lives as we preach the gospel to, to unknown nations, to, to people groups that have never found the gospel. Really, this this can be the peace. We need to read some of those amazing stories of martyrs who've, who've lost their lives and as they're hanging upside down, they look with peace at their persecutors and they say, I forgive you. There's peace that you will never get as you coddle your family in a safe little picket-fenced home that you will never experience as we keep each other safe from the trauma of the world. There's a peace that the world doesn't understand that can be given us as we trust in Him, as we live for His glory. Yes, it's corrupt. Yes, sometimes you just want to give up on the whole thing, the whole project. You just want to say, it's fallen, it's broken, I'm a nihilist. But Jesus, by His Spirit, comes and He says, come trust me again. Come hold my hand. Why don't you dream again? Why don't we hope again? If I could beat death then, I can beat death now. There's another world coming. If I'm alive, then I will be alive and we will restore and renew all things. The moralist, it's to say, God, I cannot fix it all. To get to the end of ourselves and say my good deeds are not enough. I cannot save the planet, but you will. And today I choose to give you my trust and choose your moral vision for the world. What's the solution? I'll land with this. Maybe the band can come join us. We're gonna sing the glories of the solution together. The solution is simple. Trust. Trust Him. The, the, The glory of the gospel is that He's done what we could never do, and He's died the death that we should have died, and He comes, and He calls us, and He says, trust me. There's a couple of questions that we're going to put up here, and maybe as you stand, you just want to read these questions, because there's shards of hedonist, therapeutic, moralists, nihilists in all of us. Stand with me, and let's read these together, not out loud, but I'm going to read them, and you just maybe want to reflect on your own journey with Jesus. Maybe it's your not yet journey with Jesus. Maybe you're today going, maybe I need to rethink this. The hedonistic part of us. Can you see ways you can trust God for your truest pleasure? What area do you need to trust Him more than your next pleasure? For the therapeutic, can you see that God calls you to supernatural peace? How might you need to risk losing peace in finding His purpose and living for His glory? To the moralist, can you see where you might lose perspective at times? In which areas your passion can distract you from God's greater plan and purpose? Nihilist, can you recognize in yourself the longing for hope, even if it's faint, for love and a renewed world? Would you trust the crucified Jesus to bring you along for the ride today, to include you as his partner? Jesus, as we reflect on these, I just pray for each of us as we embark on a journey as a church of finding your heart for the beautiful aspects of what it means to follow you. I do pray that you would coach us. We thank you that you're gentle. We thank you that you're a God of grace. You don't rip us out of our discomforts, but you take us towards yourself and often you're gentler than we expect. If you need to rip us out, do it. (laughs) But I pray today that you would help us to trust you. To repent. Repent is to go. I change my view of the world and I trust your view of the world. To turn from our need for the one thing we think is the overarching most desperate need and to see that you are our most desperate need. That it's your peace in the presence of complex life that we need more than anything. We can't manufacture that. We need your spirit. Maybe even now if you wouldn't mind just joining me in a prayer under your breath where you say come Holy Spirit just invite the presence of Jesus to guide you he's so kind the image I've had all week is just the image of Jesus just holding my hand and chatting He let's go and he keeps chatting and then he listens and then he chats the story of discipleship is not heavy rules and difficult days The story of discipleship is God present with us in Jesus Christ by His Spirit, listening, talking, encouraging and correcting. One day at a time, one moment at a time, as He says, come with me. I'll shape your moral vision for the world. I'll coach you in what it really means to love. I'll show you what the truth is. Come into my scriptures. Let's go. Hold my hand. Let's go. Jesus, coach us. Even as we sing, we We commit freshly as a community of love to long for more of your leading and your guiding, your discipling and your growing us. Let's sing together.